Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you've come to the right place. I've got another fantastic guest this episode. He is an Emmy Award keynote speaker and author, a professional drummer, but most importantly, he's also a loving father to his two beautiful daughters, a former private pilot turned generational workforce expert. My guy on this episode has dedicated his professional career as the undercover millennial undercovering the secrets to what leaders are doing right. In his new book that we discuss in this episode, I love it here, how great leaders create organizations their people will never want to leave. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Clint Pulver. you today dude i'm good tyler i really appreciate you having me on the show man it means a lot first you know being athletes coaches student athletes really teamwork all the different you know things we describe it with it really comes down to culture and it's organizational culture that's your specialty what got you fascinated with kind of how organizations and teams work yeah so uh five years ago i was a part of a mastermind group with a bunch of other ceos executives and we were in new york city and we went and hung out with you know other executives that were killing it in the business industry culture all those things and one of the guys we met with had a sporting goods store in downtown manhattan and he sat there and he talked about how his business had to change over time to adapt to the marketplace and i i, I agreed to him right you know uh business 20 years ago versus business today is totally different. Right. And then I asked him, I said, so what about your management style? Have you had to change how you deal with people today versus what you did 20 years ago? And he fired back and he said, nope. Mm -mm. He said, the way I manage today is the same way I managed 20 years ago and we get results. And I thought it was a little bit interesting because here he thought that he needed to change how he did business because the market adapts. But then when it came to people, there was no need to, there was no need for adaptation. And I'm sitting there, we're in the store, and I'm looking around, and all of his employees are my age or younger. So millennials, Gen Z. And I, I, I just thought to myself, Tyler, I said, I wonder if those employees would say the same thing. Hmm. I wonder if they would have the same perception as this guy did. And so we had like 35 minutes to kill until we needed to be at our next place. He gave us like 60% off swag in the store. I didn't really want anything. I had 35 minutes to kill. That's right. So literally just out of curiosity, I walked up to the first employee that I saw and I looked like this. I had a backwards hat on t-shirt, just a customer. And I walked up to that employee and I said, Hey, I, uh, I'm just curious. What's it like to work here? <laughs> and the employee sits there. He pauses for a minute. He looks around. <laughs> I feel like we're doing like an illegal drug exchange. Right, like undercover boss, uh-oh. Yeah, totally, man. And he, said, he was like, dude, do you really want to know? And I was like, yeah, I, I genuinely want to know. And he goes, dude, I cannot stand it here. He's like, I literally feel like I'm a number. He said, honestly, I don't even think my manager knows I'm here right now. Mm. I'm like, well, well, dude, then why are you still working here? And he said, no, I've applied to three other places. As soon as I get an offer, I'm out. And I was like, okay, well, maybe the dude's having a bad day. So I went and I interviewed another employee and another and another. And in 35 minutes, Tyler, I interviewed six of his staff. And at the end of that conversation with every one of them, five 
out of the six of his people said they would not be working for him and his store in less than three and a half months. The perception of what he saw and felt as a leader versus the reality of what was actually happening with his employees was a night and day difference. Yeah. And, I, and I kept thinking to myself, what if he could know? What if he could hear? I, I think so many times coaches, business managers, CEOs, unfortunately, they really don't ever have an, a clue into how poorly they're doing because there's no incentive for a player to go in and just say, you know, and give it to him straight and say, dude, this is not working for me. You know, how you coach us, how you try to lead us, how you try to motivate us is not working. There's no incentive to do that, right? If you want to be blacklisted, if you want to be, you know, deemed the, as the drama person on the team, there's incentive to be quiet. But what the employee's really thinking, what the team's really thinking is, dude, I, you devalue us. Every, every time we win, you take the credit. Every time we lose, you blame somebody else. I'm literally thinking about going somewhere else. I don't want to be here. Yeah. But the managers don't ever really know that. And so that was the day that started the Undercover Millennial Program. Gotcha. It was five years ago, man. And I have spent five years working with 181 organizations. And Undercover, I have interviewed over 10,000 employees as the Undercover Millennial. Yeah. And we have found the most real and authentic data behind how great leaders created organizations that people never wanted to leave. Yeah. Because dude, that was the magic. That was the magic. It was not when an employee was pissed off at their job or they hated their manager. No, the magic was when they would say, I love it here. I love my job, dude. I love what we're doing. You, you need to apply. Awesome. And then the story behind how those great leaders were doing that. Well, I know if you've listened to a podcast of mine before, one of the things when a guest says something great, I say, awesome. I say, I love it. <laughs> so I love it here is the title of your book. Um, tell us a, bit, a little about the book. I know it goes into some of that research you just mentioned. Yeah, dude, it is not another leadership book that's written by a like self-proclaimed leadership expert. It's not the guy who it. runs the store. Yeah, it's not that. This is a book that is written by 10,000 employees who knew when their leaders were getting it right. That's what this book is about. And it's their stories. And, and dude, it was an honor to, to put it together. And it's been a ton of work. We have traveled the globe. I worked with companies from, from school districts to tech companies to, to construction companies in the medical field, hospitality, retail, fast food. And uh, man, to, to capture their stories in a real way that they didn't know their stories were being told. So we got honesty. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, we've been able to really gain insight into the employee's perspective which you've, you've got to, you've got to consider your people's hearts, their thoughts, their feelings. If you want to do anything that involves a team and you want to, you want to get the ship to go somewhere. And if you're, if you have employees, this stuff matters. Yeah. I think that one of the first things I learned when I started working with coaches that especially worked with youth in high school was emotion runs the show. Yeah, man. And, yeah. and if you know, if you, you know, can tap into it, it's very powerful. <laughs> not easy not easy yeah. but um yeah, it, it matters the i want to know i know you talk more about it in the book because i and i've heard coaches maybe i've just never had a label for it but moments of significance um how can coaches and teams create these moments of significance that can hopefully kickstart some of that emotion yeah. that we want to to grab hold towards purpose employees, team members, uh, 
your organization, whatever it is, they do not remember days. They remember moments. And the better coaches, managers get at creating moments, designing moments that matter, moments of significance, moments that create possibility. It, it is the thing that they cherish. It's the thing that, they, that really mattered to people. And I know it like sounds soft. Everyone's like, ah, the intangibles. No, they're the human skills that every team, player, member, employee is asking you. Because every player is asking you as a coach, let me know when it gets to the part about me. And some coaches hear that and they go, well, those entitled little shining stars in my life, right? <laughs> like, let me know when it gets to the, like, you know, I, and I get there's a sense of that, but it's not so much a sense of entitlement as it is a sense of just good coaching. It's bringing humanity back into the field. It's bringing sure. humanity back into the gym. And man, moments are what matter. And it's the things that we remember. I, I was the kid in school. That I, I had a hard time sitting still. And I, I still do, you know, I, I, I always have to move. My right hand would tap, my left hand would tap. And it always, it was annoying for everybody. And I got nicknamed the twitcher. Everybody called me the tapper when I was a little kid. And there was one teacher in my life and his name was Mr. Jensen. And he told me to stay after class one day. And he said, listen, Clint, you're kind of like the kid that's on the list, man. He's like, everybody sees this inability to sit still. You tap in my class. You tap in everybody else's class. He said, but I've, I've, I've watched you though. He says, it's crazy. You'll do something with your right hand while you're writing with your left hand. And then you can switch. Like you switch the pen and you'll start writing with your right hand while you tap with your left hand. And he looked at me, he looked at me and he said, dude, I think you're ambidextrous. And I was like, no, I'm Presbyterian. He goes, no, <laughs> dude, that is not what it means. He said, can you tap your head and rub your belly? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And he said, can you switch it? And just literally without thinking about it, I could do it. Yeah. And, and he leaned back in his desk and he opened up the top drawer and he reached inside and he took out my very first pair of drumsticks. Cool. And he leaned forward and he said, listen, kid, he said, I don't, I don't think you're a problem. I just think you're a drummer. And that teacher, Tyler, he created a moment in my life that changed everything. Yeah. And it's been 22 years ago since that moment. And I have traveled the world as a professional drummer uh, all over. I played with Blue Man Group, Tim McGraw, Carrie Underwood. I've been on America's Got Talent. My whole college education was paid for through music scholarships. Wow. You know, and I don't say all that to go, wow, good for you. Like, oh, you're, that's amazing. No, I'm telling you that because one person, one person decided to create a moment that helped me live a better story. Yeah, That's what gets remembered. That is the stuff that every day as a coach, a manager, a boss, you get to play that role in somebody's life. That's, that's, that's a significant moment. That's a significant call point. I, I, I think I just had one listen to that story. I don't think I'll forget you telling me that story, <laughs> you know? Um, loyalty. Coaches sometimes just ask for it. Players want you to earn it, even on their first day. Yeah. How do we create it amongst teams? And what opposite, on the other hand, erodes it the fastest? Yeah, man. In, in, in every, every team, every organization, you find four, four types of coaches. And in our research, we, we found it in all organizations. These types of coaches were based off of two things. 
their standards and their expectations for the team. And second, their ability to connect with the players or vice versa, right? Or, or they just couldn't do either. So the first coach that we find is the removed coach. This is the coach that just honestly should have stopped coaching 20 years ago. <laughs> They're just burnt out. They're tired. Yeah. It's like, it's another freaking season. I have no idea. I don't care who you are. I don't know what position you play. I'm just here. Like blow the whistle, do your thing. I, I, I'm just tired. Yeah. And so what does this create? It creates disengagement in the team. My, my, my coach doesn't care. Why should I care? Uh, and then number two, fairly common. You find the buddy, the buddy coach. This is the coach who wants to be everybody's friend. This is the coach who just wants to be admired, wants to be liked. You know, doesn't want to ruffle feathers. You know, doesn't want to tick off parents. So they just try to be everybody's friend. So they're low on their standards, low on their execution, their expectations, but they're high on connection. What does this create? A sense of entitlement. Where the team looks at the coach as a homie, not as a coach. And you almost, sometimes, I'm sure you've seen this, Tyler, where, where a player can become more of the coach than the coach. And it's because they've, they've adapted this relationship where, yeah, coach, he's just a friend. He's a, you know, stay over there. If I need something, I'll let you know I'm running the show. But the third is the most common, especially in, in, in sports, uh, and it's the controller. It's the controller coach. This is the command and control, old style, put your head down, don't complain to me. You want the W, you're going to earn the W. I'm going to make sure you earn I'm not here to be your friend. I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be a coach. Yeah. So they're high on standards, low on connection. And what does this create? Every time, man, rebellion. This, this, this battle between the player and the coach. It's coach trying to go toe-to-toe with every single player on the team instead of going shoulder-to-shoulder. But this, the fourth one, man. Yeah, every time I talk about this, dude, I just get fired up because it was magic. And I call them the mentor. Not, not the coach, not the leader. I call them the mentor because they were equally high on their standards as much as they were on their ability to connect. And what did this create in the team? Respect. They weren't always liked, but they were respected. And dude, mentorship was a beautiful thing because it, it was not a title. It was something that they earned. That coach earned that, that, that sense to be there. And there was five attributes that a mentor coach, a mentor manager always had. And I call it the, the five C's of, of mentorship. And number one, it was, it was confidence. They were confident in their coaching ability. You know, and that built trust. You know, listen, I, I understand the plays. I understand the game. I, and I know where we need to go. They were confident in that. It instilled trust. Uh, number two, they had credibility. Here's the thing. I, I want to know, like, have you ever played? You ever played the game? You played football before? Have you played volleyball before? Like, what's your credibility? What's your history? And they showcased that to the players. That mattered. And then competence was another important factor. You know, it's one thing to sit there and talk about the game, but can you get out and actually shoot a hoop? You know, what's your technique? As a drummer, I don't want to study or learn from somebody that knows everything about drum theory. No, I want to learn from a practitioner, someone who's doing it, has done it, understands it, can actually play the game. And then number four was candor. They had the ability to create relationships so strong that honesty could exist. Mm. They made the deposits of trust constantly so that they could make the withdrawals, right? They understood that no significant loyalty ever happens without significant connection. And that leads into the last, the last C and it was care, the ability to truly care. 
You know, it's not just about development. It's not just about winning. It's not just about what everybody else thinks. No, I really care about you as an individual. Okay, I, you know, it's not like, you know, life is more important than football. No, you are more important than football as a human. I care about you and your success. Yeah. And when players understand that, there's just a sense of buy-in. And, it, and Big time. About, like, you know, the great sports movies. I'm sure, Tyler, you love a good sports movie, right? Right. Of course. You always have that. You have the hero in the story who shows up, the mentor. Yeah. Uh, freaking Rocky, right? Mick pops up. Yeah. Mick, Mick the man, right? Frodo, Gandalf shows up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Simba, <laughs> Mufasa. You, you're, you're, Rocky and Lion King are like two of my favorite movies, man. You're like, yeah, you're, you're on a roll here. <laughs> so anyways, the point I'm trying to make, again, mentorship, dude. It, you could not become a mentor until the mentee invites you into their heart. And when they do that, game over man the, the 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 power of your influence and significance is life lasting it's yeah it's it's powerful have uh have you ever uh heard of joe ehrman that name sounds super familiar so he's uh he's a former nfl player uh, he has a book called uh there's a book written about him and then he had a book uh written about right about coaching but he's he was always a big proponent of his dream was wave a magic wand and the word coach is gone and it's replaced with mentor. Yeah. And it was just that, that was the way he wanted coaches to think in, in their role. hundred percent. And you know, when you get feedback on what your role is, it looks more like mentor and when they really, what is, what should it be? Um, so I get, I have to send you some stuff on him for sure. Um, you know, athletes, coaches sometimes present themselves as these mentors. Um, in our life, I think growing up in athletics, there was always some, some good role models and mentors in there. But when I got into the real world, a little harder to find some of those people that actually care, you yep. know, and what suggestions would you have for, you know, student athletes or maybe young coaches that, uh, you know, are looking for a right mentor in their life, um, ways they can find them um, creatively? Yeah, dude. I would say first, earn it, earn it, be willing to earn it. You should be willing to go and do whatever it takes to associate with astonishing people. And great mentors I found were always being mentored. Uh, I wrestled a, a ton in, in high school and my dad was a state champion, nice. very competitive, was literally my coach throughout my whole wrestling career. And we grew up in Heber City, Utah and that place, Wasatch High School, breeds wrestlers, like literally breeds them. Kel Sanderson, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, came from my high school. Olympic gold medalist. He's the coach of Penn State right now. And every Friday night, dude, we would go to the varsity wrestling matches and we would watch Kel Sanderson just throw dudes around. <laughs> and, and I remember in high school, it was a little bit of a drag. And I'd always tell my dad, I'd be like, dad, dude, like it's Friday night. And for a high school kid, that's like date night. Let's go hang out with the friends. There's no school the next day. Right. And I told my dad, like, dude, I just, I don't want to go. I don't want to go every Friday night. I got things that I got another life to live. And my dad got really serious with me. And he said, listen, he said, Clint, do you want to be, do you want to be a great wrestler? Do you want to be a great wrestler? And I said, yes. And he said, then you have to hang out by the mat. You have to hang out by the mat. And it's the same thing like basketball, right? You want to get good at basketball, you hang out by the hoop. So I would tell a young athlete, if you want to get good at basketball, right? Or you want to be a coach one day, hang out where those people are associating. Hang out where those people are. Maybe it's a Facebook group. Maybe it's Instagram. Maybe you're connecting with people on LinkedIn. 
Are you subscribing to the specific magazines that talk about that? Are you joining associations that gather people together to discuss those types of things? If you want to get good at wrestling, hang out by the mat. Where are the people that you want to be like and do whatever it takes to be there? Love it. As coaches, you know, I think I always say recognition and reward are two of the, the greatest motivators. I hate ever being called a motivating speaker. <laughs> it's like, you know, like it's, uh, but um, recognition and reward. I know in your research, you found out even deeper. I, I know from just surface level, what people are usually surprised at is most people rather be recognized than, than have a little extra cash. Um, maybe you can tell me, maybe I'm wrong, but what were the other five ways that employees wanted to be recognized? Yeah, interesting enough with all of the research that we conducted, vocal praise was the number one thing asked for the most. It was not money, it was not a vacation, it was not a bonus, it was vocal praise. And I, I think sometimes we, we, we look over that and, and what's crazy to me is in an organization, it costs you nothing, nothing. Like the, that a boy, is that a girl? Like way to go. Like, hey, I saw what, what, what you did. It was an amazing play. Nice job. You're hustling. You're growing. You're doing better. Like that type of stuff matters to people. Big time. And uh, yeah, so vocal praise is number one. Uh, the second thing was experiences. Employees talked about, you know, I love it as a team. We went out and we all went freaking axe throwing. It was rad. <laughs> you know, we went and did stuff together. We kind of put, put the ball away for a minute and we, we just went and hung out. We had an experience. It was a great way to recognize everybody. After, after the game, we all went out and we got pizza together, you know, and it wasn't just straight home. Good job. We'll see you at practice. We went out and we had an experience. Uh, number two is flexibility, time off. You know, the coach was like, listen, you guys have been hustling. You've been doing well. Take Friday off. Go be with your families. You know, go be with your friends. Go be like that. It's just a little bit of flex, time yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the fourth part is, is pay. That's obviously a corporate thing. But like money mattered, right? A little bit. Like here's an Amazon gift card. Here's an increase in pay. Here's a raise. Here's a bonus. Money's a great way to show some recognition. No doubt. Yeah. And then uh, the last one is I call it toys and awards, man. Like think Letterman's jacket. Think a, a medal. Think a plaque. Like a rookie of the year. The rookie of the year award. Like that yeah. stuff that symbolizes something. It literally costs you like 30 bucks at the, at the local trophy store. But to that player... <laughs> it means a lot. It signifies yeah. something. Yeah. And so those, those, those five things, man, are, are I think something really important to consider and, and to recognize people. What are some ways that we can personalize that as well? Because it's not a one size fits all approach. You know, some people might like an experience, like, like go to a concert or go ax throwing. But some people are like, dude, just give me some money. That's all I need. I just want some money. Yeah. You know, ask your people. That's where, again, that connection, getting to know your players, getting to know your team, what they need, what they want, allows you to personalize that recognition in a way that's more meaningful. Like the, I had an internship where I don't even know where most of my sports trophies are anymore from being a kid, but I have an, a trophy that I've kept from an internship that they gave me for a made up award. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone won it the year before. No one won it the year yeah. after. Yeah, but you but won it. I, I got it that year, you know, I, whatever it did, I got, I, I did, I got the trophy. So, um, you know, and, and it was tied to experience, just like you said. So with those people, so, um, love it. One of the last things, uh, we always like to ask on the show, 
especially with all these interviews, has it maybe changed your mind, but how do you view success? I would say, I would maybe frame the question a little bit differently for me in my life, is not so much how do you view success, but how do you view significance? Because those two things are, are very different. And for me, uh, striving for significance over success always wins. Yeah. Uh, I have a mantra that I live by my life by, and, and, it, and it's this. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about being the best for the world. And I think there's a lot of coaches. There's a lot of managers, a lot of teams. They try to focus on being the best. I'm going to be the best team. We're going to have the best record. I'm going to have the best players. But I think the most significant coaches understand that, no, I'm going to be the best for my team. We're going to be the best team for others. We're going to be the best team for each other. And, and that is usually what allows people to be better. That's what allows more W's to hit the scoreboard, right? That's what, when you find that organization that, yeah, they're talented, they have the skills, they have the development, they have the training, but they also understand that there's a purpose there, that they're playing for something bigger than themselves. Significance versus success always wins. Oh,